Hey, good morning. It's good to see you. Good morning and go Vols. Glad to have you here with us today. (laughs) Y'all didn't sound like that last week. What's that? Uh, No, I'll put it right here. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 25. We're going to be actually all over the Bible today, but I think that's the one passage that you could turn to safely um, and stay. We're going to keep our walk and pace through the Apostles' Creed, just as Charlie had said. It's been very helpful for me. I know it's been helpful for a lot of you. Um, So Matthew 25 is going to be one of the passages that leads us, because again, we're not preaching the Creed. We're we're preaching the, the passages that build the Creed up for us. And while you're turning there, I don't know if you remember this, some of you are not as old as I am, but the 2001 Major League Baseball season, I remember it more than most years. Um, It happened in, you know, 9-11 was right in the middle of it, so of course baseball, like everything, paused um, after the, the, the attacks, and when it resumed, it resumed very red, white, and blue. It was a very patriotic baseball season, rightfully so all the way throughout the end of it all. But that was also the year that Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire battled back and forth for the single season home run record, right? I just lost a third of you, didn't I? (laughs) I'm in Knoxville and I just said baseball stuff. Um, but, But I think this might be a little fun fact. That was also the year that you began to see the thin little box superimposed on the screen right above home plate, right? Before that, You couldn't really see whether a ball or a strike was thrown. You just kind of squint your eyes, kind of discern to the best you could, and then just trust that the umpires were seeing what you could not see. Um, But listen, it wasn't always right, even then. But whenever that box showed up on the screen in 2001 for the first time, so did outrage in the sport of baseball. Because we could finally see for the first time how much injustice was actually being given to those batters. We would look at it and go, that is not a strike. Or that is not a ball, right? What is wrong with this guy? Of course, he doesn't have the white little box like I do. And of course, he doesn't have slow motion like I do. And of course, they're coming at 103 miles an hour and they're the size of an apple, right? But he didn't see that. I saw that. So outrage started to sweep across baseball because of the injustice of it all. Incidentally, minor league baseball teams right now, most of them have moved to AI-infused robotics to discern what is a ball and a strike with the intentions of that being the platform to work out the kinks. It's coming to major league baseball within five years, right? That's pretty amazing. Also, it's coming to NFL and college football by the year 2040. It's going to be the standard. So you heard that here first. There is a day coming where there will be no more refs, no more throwing flags, no more missed holding calls, no more balls called strikes, and vice versa. It's just going to be nothing but righteousness, injustice, all the way through a game because of robots. Robots are going to change sports. Now, why is sports removing the human element so much? Why is that happening? It's really easy. We want right judgments made, and we just stink at doing that very consistently as humans. We're not very good at it at all. Bad judgments, they disrupt us at a core and visceral level. We can't, when I say we, I mean humanity, we cannot stand to see justice dropped and mishandled. It bothers all of us. It's why we hate the idea of crooked judges. It's why we hate the idea of uh, uh, crimes not having sentences given that match up. It all feels inappropriate. We, we, we see an unbiased legal system, and it really 
It really gets under our saddle. But where do you think that came from? Why? I mean, why, why do we care so much about justice? The answer is also easy. God created us that way. He created us to long for justice, and he also created us to long for a day where injustice would be swept away forever. It's encoded in creation. And the good news for you and me is the gospel is a story where one ultimate day, ultimate justice, will be delivered against ultimate injustice by an ultimate judge. It's a part of our gospel story. Whenever we say we believe in the gospel, whenever we say we preach the gospel, whenever we say we build from the foundation that is the gospel, this is a part of it. All will be rightly judged. All will be rightly cleansed. This is where we're at in the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus will come and he will judge the living and the dead. It's here that we pivot in our creed from looking back at what God has done and who he is to who God is and then what the gospel has built which incidentally is where we gather all of our values. But right here is where we're turning. One thing Jesus is going to do, make no mistake, he will return, he will judge the living and the dead. Stay where you're at, but in 2 Peter 3, Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Everything exposed. Everything exposed. Nothing hidden. All will be measured, and all will be measured rightly. Strikes will be called strikes. Flags will be thrown on the right people. Everything will be as it should be. Now, here's something I don't have to hard sell you, right? Culture hates the idea of an eternal judgment. Society at large hates that. But here's here's some deep honesty. The church isn't really sure what to do with it either. We don't know how we're supposed to feel about it. Is this something that we're supposed to celebrate? Do we hang our heads? Are we supposed to make excuses about it? Maybe skip it, ignore it? Do we use it as as an evangelical club to, to scare people into Christianity? I mean, I remember in college, the first time I took the Bible seriously, the first time I took Jesus seriously, was when I understood and heard for the first time clearly, judgment, eternal judgment. Now, it didn't make me enjoy Jesus. It didn't make me love or like Jesus. But it, it was the first time that kind of stopped me in my tracks. Is that how we're supposed to handle it? You see, at its most basic level, nobody wants to be judged by anybody other than maybe self. And I'm not even sure that's always the case. Nobody wants to be told that they've been measured and they're not cutting it. They're just not enough. I think it just confirms what we already fear about ourselves. And that's just that we don't have what it takes. That's the real problem with being judged. But it's so natural, isn't it? I mean, it's natural to feel judged, but that's because it's natural for you to judge as well. It's easy for us. I want you to consider that it only takes one-tenth of a second to form a first impression on somebody else. This is what they found at Princeton. They had two scientists that studied a lot on this. They worked pretty hard on this, and they discerned that, yeah, it's going to take just one-tenth of a second. And one of the things that they found in this big study that they did is if you had more time after that first one-tenth of a second, it does not significantly alter that first impression that you had. That's all you needed to see their Zoom background, to, to form a judgment, to see how they drove, to see what kind of shoes they have on. It is that quick. Someone walks in a room, it takes you no time at all to say, are they a threat? Or are they trustworthy? Are those prison tattoos or spring break tattoos? Is this guy a weirdo? Is he smart? Is he safe? This is, these are the things we do. 
We do it quickly, one-tenth of a second. We don't just judge, we do it fast, which makes sense. I mean, we were always brought up hearing things, groomed to hear. You could tell a lot about a person by the way they fill in the blank, by the way they handle their mom, by the way they handle their mouth, by the way they shake a hand. You could tell a lot about a person. We judge people quick, and we judge their deeds as well. But we don't judge it as purely as we think we do, right? The, the standard of how we judge is an amalgam of things. It is what we think is right, but it's also what we feel in the moment, which is formed by our culture. It's formed by how we were brought up. It's formed by the collective idea of what is good and what is bad. That all affects us, right? Even you and I know that we do not judge rightly. Our, our, our judgments are not based on the eternal best law of God. It's got a lot of other things sprinkled in. It's fluid the way you and I judge, right? We're complicated like that. That we judge quickly, we judge inconsistently, imperfectly. To show you how complicated we are as people who judge, I went to Reddit, the last wise and honest space on the internet. I never go there, but I went there and I found the heading that said this, why are Christians so judgmental? And I couldn't help, and it was so helpful. Not really, it was not helpful at all. But I did pick four one-liners that I thought kind of maybe took culture's idea of judgmental Christianity and crunched it down for us, and here they are. Number one, many Christians are downright judgmental and ready to hit you with the Bible, and I don't think it's right, period. That's a judgment, by the way. I don't know if you caught that. They just formed a judgment on Christians. I love it. Two, it's because their religion gives them a sense of moral superiority, so they just bully others. All right? Three, the majority of Christians are being coerced to judge others by their own belief of hell. And then finally, my favorite, Jesus was a cool guy that hung out with everybody. He didn't judge, period, right? There was a lot more. Here's some solid conclusions I built from that well-spent 20 minutes, but they're conclusions that you already had before you even heard me say any of this, is that when many people say judgmental, they mean unloving. Uh, to be judgmental, to bring a moral evaluation, that's seen as a pejorative. That's seen as something that is toxic. That seemed that is some, that's hateful to people. That's something I think we all know. Culture will take love and they will substitute tolerance in for judgment. So if you're judging, if you're forming an evaluation that cannot be in any way, shape, or form love to that person or love to society or just speaking the truth, it is intolerant. It's harmful. It's hateful. Now, Christians have largely learned how to dodge all the rock throwing here by just saying, well, listen, I mean, I might not agree with what they're doing. I mean, listen, I, I don't live like that because I go to church. I love Jesus. I'm a Christian. But, but I'm not one to judge. I'm not one to judge. The Bible tells me not to judge. I mean, Jesus was a cool guy. He didn't judge. And that's how we do it. That's how we stay out of the fray. But what culture has done is it has refashioned Christ, Christ who was a rock that does not bend. We've taken as if he's clay and we've reformed him, remodeled him, really. And he is no longer the God-man, the king and general of all creation who bled to cover all of our sins. Oh, no. He's a therapeutic cheerleader. He's an ally that's super cool with what you're doing as long as you are cool with what you're doing and as long as society is cool with what you are doing because you didn't judge. See, the goalposts have been moved by culture. Righteousness has also been adjusted and redefined according to whatever the collective feel is. And that again moves. 
that is fluid. It changes. So we've built a God, we have recast a God who feels no indignation with how we live. And if there's no indignation, there's no judgment. There's nothing to judge. Psalm 7 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. Every day. Friend, listen, his standards, they're not complicated. They're not fluid either. They don't move. They don't bend. They're not impure. They're fixed. They're constant. They're good. And there will be a day where pure judgment will find everyone and find everybody individually. Consider the individual nature of judgment that is coming. Acts 10.39, if you have a Bible and you're quick, you can turn there. Otherwise, just stay where you're at. Matthew, and I'm going to read this and we'll have it on the screen. It says, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to what? To be judge. To be judge of the living and the dead. This is where we pick this up in the creed. The creed got it from Acts 10. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness and sins through his name. Here's the human predicament. Our predicament, right? We hate and love judgment at the same time. We don't know what to do with it. I mean, we're part outraged by the fact that we're going to be judged, even eternally judged. We're, we're part comforted by it. We're, we're part, we feel guilty, part hopeful. The truth is, is humanity longs for righteous judgment. We are outraged to see bullies get away with things, to see the downtrodden trodden even more. We hate this, and yet we look around and we see the evidences of injustice all the time. We're hardwired to long for justice, yet all we see is injustice. And that grinding we feel is it's supposed to be there. This is why Jeremiah cries out in Jeremiah 12, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the treacherous thrive, he says? And we understand him. We're so sick and tired, sick and tired of seeing balls called strikes, of seeing flags not thrown when they should be. I mean, how many of you have been harmed to see the villain go unpunished. All of you? To see them go unpunished. So much like Jeremiah, just to look out and say, why? Why? Why is there no justice here? For let me just comfort you before I even get to it later on. One day all will be wiped aside, dissolved. As Peter says, sin will be removed, vengeance will be properly spent, and justice will be victorious. And this is so comforting to me. It's so comforting to me. Any evil ever done to you, anyone that's ever harmed you, anyone that has ever held you back, anyone that has ever pushed you down, all of that will be exposed and righted. All of it. But here's the thing. So will your response to it be. This is what vengeance is, right? The vengeful heart is the one that wants to get back at the villain and the bully. And that's also going to be under full display. Vengeance, and we've talked about this up here several times, it does not belong to us because we don't know how to spend it. We're bad umpires. We don't know how to steward vengeance. That's why it's not for us. 
It's not given to us. God says it belongs to me. It belongs to me. And one day the scales of justice will finally be cosmically balanced. And when I say vengeance, I'm not talking about just slashing somebody's tires or keying their car. I mean, come on. I mean, it could be that. Please don't do that, right? That's a sin. If you do, we'll pray for you later on. But it's also talking about just not praying for them, not forgiving them, withholding yourself, withholding your consideration, withholding your prayer. That's also vengeance. That's vengeance. You see, we want judgment. We long for good judgment. But part of it is not so comforting. Part of it's jarring, right? It's part comforting, but it's part disconcerting at the same time. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we see this. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who? We. We. Not human traffickers, not terrorists. We. He's talking to a church. We will be judged for what we have done and not done, good or evil. He's going to talk on and on and on about how minutes are misspent. Years can be misspent individually. He says, for we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, individually. Everything that we've done, everything that we've thought, everything that motivated us, all of our ambitions, all of our deeds, the things that we could have done, should have done, everything. Do you feel slightly uncomfortable when you hear something like that? I mean, does it make you long for a day of judgment? Probably not, right? It's like carrying a report, a report card home. I'm, and now I know I'm older than most of you in here, but back in the day, they were not emailed to your parents. Back in the day, they handed it to you at the end of the quarter, and you had this piece of paper. And for me, I got on the bus, right? And I rode home, and I looked at it, and I thought, here it comes. I'm going to walk in, and they're going to be all smiles. They have no idea, but I have to have this joker signed. I have to figure out a way to get their signature on the report card so I could bring it back to prove that they looked at it, right? That's how they did it back in the day, and I've got it, and there's nothing I can do about it. It is a report of my performance. It's a report, and judgment is coming. It's coming for me. It's going to find me short. And this is the way we can look at God's eternal judgment, that we're carrying this report card to the very end of all ends, and there's really nothing we can do. We have to get a signature on it. So what I'd like to do is maybe reform this in your mind. Creeds are good for this, by the way. This is one of the reasons we're going through the Apostles' Creed, because it brings accuracy to our theology. It brings some balance to our theology. It, it makes us. It shapes you and me. And this is important because we cannot celebrate a day of eternal judgment. We can't celebrate it and extend it to others if we misunderstand it. We'll always self-censor it from our gospel. We'll always hope that people don't bring it up. It becomes that electric fence that we hope nobody touches whenever we start talking to them about the good news of who Jesus is, thinking, fearing that they might say, oh yeah, well what about, a ju what, what about judgment? Doesn't sound like a very loving God to me. At, at, at that point where we just drop our heads and go, yeah, I guess you got a point. I didn't think about that. I mean, I don't know what to say to that, that fastball you just threw down the plate, you know. That, yeah, that, I mean, there is a judgment. And we, so we're so scared of it, we don't know what to do with it. It doesn't have to be like that. I want to show you that we need eternal judgment. We want this day. We can celebrate this day. We can extend this day. It has gravity to it. It's a day of dread if you are not in Christ. And friend, if that is you today, we're going to talk about this just for a split second at the end of this. But it's a day of dread. This is certain. For those who have been their own gods all through life, that day of eternal judgment is devastating. Because God is going to give you what you've always wanted. 
He's going to give you what you're not going to be ripped off. He's going to give you what you wanted, a life without him. That's why we read in Romans that he gives us up to our own impurities. He gives us up to our own desires, our own flesh, our own sins. It's weighty. And it should provoke a sadness and in, in a, a tearful response in us. It should. If it's hard for you to think about that, that means you're healthy. It's supposed to be a difficult doctrine. But this is not the case for those of us who are in Christ. That day of eternal judgment, that's more than a sunny day for us. It's more. Let me explain. I want you to imagine a scenario, hypothetical of course, where there is no judgment. No eternal judgment. It's gone. We'll just hit the lead on it. Imagine an eternity where there's no justice. No remorse or regret over evil. Hitler, doing just fine. Sex traffickers, fine. No regret at all. Imagine an eternity of bullies and bad judges that never have to answer for anything. Imagine that. Imagine a day where the downtrodden just keep getting trodden upon more and more and more, and no one's throwing any flags on it. No one even sees anything wrong with it. God's glory is totally diminished. For eternity, evil gets the last laugh. For eternity, victims never get their day. This would be hellish. This would be hellish. God would not be glorified. The gospel would not be good. Jesus would be useless. Your hope, your faith, it's in vain. That's the reality without an eternal judgment. That's what happens when we pluck that out of our theology and try to mush through life. Friends, you cannot have a God of love without a God of justice, and you cannot have a God of justice without a God of judgment. It's impossible. You cannot have a God of love without a God of justice, and you cannot have a God of justice without a God of judgment. Let me explain even more. What truly comforts me about an eternal day and a final judgment is the fact that our judge is perfect and kind. He is singularly qualified to do this thing called judgment. He's not, he's not devious. He's not marching around with some, just some weird vendetta he's trying to get, like a, like a principal who's angry at his students, polishing his paddle, right? So <laughs> I keep dating. This is the one I've dated myself like four times already. In high school, in the early 90s, I was paddled in the hallway by principals and coaches with a wooden paddle in high school. That's how old I am. And they would polish those dumb things and give them nicknames to install fear in you and drill holes in them to whistle. All all the rumors are true. They did that, right? And so that's how we see something like judgment. We carry it straight into this. And we think, well, that's got to be how God is then. That That has to be how he is when he executes eternal judgment. But that's not how Peter describes him. Second Peter, he says this, he's patient with bullies. He's patient with villains. He's not hungry to destroy people. He's slow. He's patient. And he wants new life in you and me so much that he's willing to come down to afford it for you and me. God's judgment is not just getting even. It's corporate cleansing. It's important that we see it that way. Sin is going to be removed from the cosmos like cancer is from a body. Just as a surgeon would punish a tumor, just as a surgeon would reach in and scoop out a sickness, God will do so with all of sin and all of injustice on that day for his glory and for our ultimate good. Matthew 25, if you're there, we're going to read it together. 
and it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is what I'm talking about when I say corporate cleansing. The thing is, is I'm not a shepherd, and I can't remember the last time I was within, you know, hand grenade distance from a sheep or a goat, but I will just say that from what I have heard, if you squint your eyes and they're way far off, they all look the same, which makes sense. They're all little animals. They all run together. They probably all look the same, right? But a shepherd is able to corporately cleanse and say, you go here and you go here. From a distance, they all look the same, but he knows. He's able to evaluate. You see, he, he sees all. He is qualified to do this because he can do it righteously. So we could trust him with his intentions, with his ambitions. We can trust him. His heart is pure. He's unlike any judge who has ever existed before. He sees all. He knows every side to the story. He can see when you were bullied. He could see when you were the bully. He sees all the shading of the human heart, the nuances that that pulse through us, our very motivations, our ambitions, the anxieties that made us do something or kept us from doing something. He knows the mechanics of why we do what we do better than we know even why we do what we do. We are intimately known down to the molecular level, to the deepest, farthest regions of the human soul. We are exposed before him. Psalm 130, David says this, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should call sin, sin, who can stand? Who can stand? Well, no one. (laughs) No one can stand. We're all doomed. We're all guilty. Everyone in the room is without even a defense. This is what it says in Romans 3. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God All have turned away. They have all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one can stand. Until we understand this, the gospel is just an empty, vacuous string of words made into a sentence, coughed out from time to time that we want to believe, but it's not really good news. It's just okay news. But the gospel picks up and says, we do have one that stands for us, the judge himself. The very judge, he he comes down from the bench and he takes our place. And then we have a life where we live as if we were innocent the whole time. Listen, the gospel doesn't make the villain innocent. But that the innocent comes and assumes the guilt and gives freedom and privileges to the guilty person as if they were innocent a swapping of righteousness. By the way, this is why David says in Psalm 15, if you've ever wondered, O Lord, this is Psalm 15, just the first three verses, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. We've always read this as if it had something to do with us. Friend, that's not a psalm about you, right? But that's how we read it. We read it like, like, like when the football players are leaving the locker room and they slap that plaque that says, I'll do all for Tennessee or whatever it says. I never really read it. I'm sure it says something like that, right? 
that we do that. I'm going to sojourn in the tent today. Bam! I can walk out into the big, bold, hard world just trying to do the best we can to sojourn with Jesus, whatever that even means. This is talking about Christ. This is talking about Christ. Oh, Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly. He who does what is right. Speaks truth in his heart. This is talking about Jesus, the truest of judges, the one walking blamelessly and speaking truth at all times. And yet the hill he found had a cross on it. Not what he deserved, but what we deserved. Our judge took our judgment upon himself. Right? Listen, knowing that I was rescued from a sentencing of eternal torment, knowing that I was rescued from that shows me the kindness of God. The kindness of God. And that kindness of God leads me to repentance, as we read in Romans 2. That's why it's important for you to see, savor, long for, understand the eternal day of judgment. Because you can't really experience a deep gospel without even understanding it. So how do we move forward, though? I mean, how do we take that and install it in our software and move forward through the rest of the week? What does it mean for us to understand this? One thing it allows us to do is it allows us to move forward with joyful assurance. You will be judged for every millisecond. That's for sure, okay? So I want you to imagine when it's all said and done, this isn't how it's going to look, okay? This is just for illustration. You're going to sit down at a table. Jesus walks in, and he pushes a filing cabinet box, one of those you know, cardboard boxes across. It's full of all of your, your, your evil deeds, even the ones that you didn't even know you had because it was so in the far back of the recesses of your mind. Or maybe a thumb drive if you want. But it, there it is. There is your whole dirty life right in front of you. I want you to imagine that. That which would have condemned you and all of that evidenced is replaced with the perfect life of Jesus. Hell has been removed from you in that moment because he experienced that same hell from the cross. Now, we looked at this a few weeks ago when we talked about the descent of Christ, right? And what it meant for him to experience hell. We looked at this. And what this means for you and me is the life that you and I live right now, if you're in Christ, this is as hellish as it gets, friend. This is as bad as it's going to get for you. It will only get better, which, this, which is why Paul says it's better to be with Jesus. It's great to be here. It's better to be with Jesus. In Christ, you have nothing to fear on the eternal day of judgment. Yes, you will come face to face with all of your failures and flaws. And yes, the gospel springs alive before you as you will never be sentenced according to your deeds. So we have joyful assurance. But we can also move forward with caution. God is the one that stewards judgment and vengeance because you and I, we're sloppy umpires. We're not as good at calling balls and strikes as we think we are. But God, in his eternal accounting and balancing the books, will do things perfectly. Everything will be balanced out in the end of all ends. Vengeance, whenever it is exercised and spent by God, that is him balancing the books. And it falls on Christ or it falls on us. So we also move forward with comfort. And this is, this is comforting for me. This means that all the injuries that you have had, they will be accounted for. The bullies in your life that did that thing to you at that place, that's going to be shown. It's going to be exposed. It's going to be fixed. It's going to be righted. Evil will not get the last laugh. They will not get away with it. They won't. 
Instead, it's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. And, and I know if you've been deeply damaged in here, isn't there an aspect of, yeah, that doesn't sound good enough. I mean, that's then. <laughs> I'm kind of looking for a little bit of satisfaction now. Let me assure you, if the Bible is true, and it reads the way it clearly reads to me, whenever it does happen, you will be so enthralled, so fascinated. You'll be sinking and drowning and laughing in the grandeur and in the glory of God himself. You won't want what you think you will want now. You won't have any room for it. You won't have any hunger for it. And what this allows us to do is it allows us to pray for our enemies. Try praying, forgiving, thinking of your enemies without the idea of eternal judgment balancing all the rows and columns. It's impossible. It's impossible. But if we know that everything will be made right that is wrong today, it allows us to just take our hands off and say, vengeance isn't for me. Withholding my thought, my heart, withholding my prayer, it's, that's vengeance. I could give it to God. I can give it to God. It also allows us to move forward with intention, which means we can look forward and build a life knowing that it will be reflected in a final judgment, right? I mean, one of the things that the old Puritans would say is important for pastors to do with local churches is to prepare them to die well, right? As a way of saying to prepare them to build a life that is beautiful, that cruises into death, understanding what death really is, to help you build a eulogy of a life well lived. And it just is so much easier to do that when we see that eternal judgment is going to show us, measure how we spent our minutes, our milliseconds, and our decades. Because listen, if you've heard everything I've said today and you've thought, well, I mean, if Jesus' life replaces all of my flaws and failures, then why do I care about not walking in more flaws and more failures? But all this would show is that you have not come to grasp the gospel quite yet. You don't have clear view of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus because the cross shows us that our sins are forgiven and there's no need for shame. That's true. But the tomb being empty shows us that death has been conquered and we're free to grow. We're free to change. Change just as drastically as death coming to life. So we have intention. And then finally, we can move forward with some humility. Humility. This would take its own sermon. But the most misused verse in the whole Bible is judge not lest you be judged, right? Lest you be judged. Right after that, by the way, if you keep reading, Jesus does what? He teaches a parable on how to judge, <laughs> how to make a moral evaluation, how to look on the scene and say that's wrong, how to make an ethical judgment. We're led by the Bible to make ethical judgments. We're led by the Bible to look at culture, society, a neighbor, a kid, a friend, and say, that friend is wrong. The way you talk, the way you do this, the way you dress, the way you believe is wrong. We're, we're led to do this, but just not from a balcony of superiority. That's what Christ is talking about right there, by the way. He's condemning this rash, hypocritical passing of judgment where we hunt for failures, we magnify them as fast and as big as we can, while failing to see it in ourselves, right? But the better way, maybe the more gospel-framed way to make moral evaluations is to look at somebody and say, hey, the way you behave right now, that's an affront to God, but listen, I only know this because I'm capable of worse. <laughs> oh, I'm far worse. 
I've got some planks in my eye. But this is how God sees me. This is how I see the sin. This is how I see the Lord. This is how I see you. That's a totally different way of handling something, isn't it? Totally different. Jesus is not telling us to not say something is wrong. We're just to look at the impurity in our own lives with the same scrutiny and not form some hypocritical judgment from some moral superiority. We can call balls balls and strikes strikes and just know that there is a perfect God that will judge rightly one day. And the only reason that you and I have escaped any sentencing is because he's been very good and graceful and merciful to us. And what this builds over time is a church that holds biblical standards high. This is what it means to live a beautiful, Christ-filled, biblically defined life where we can call sin, sin, and yet be so humble doing it that it's attractive to the very lost world. It's attractive. Unbending courage, yet tempered by a humble awareness. So listen, there's a couple things that we can do to repent. I mean, you can go 10 different directions, but the one thing I really feel like the Lord is asking from you and me as Christians is to let go of vengeance. To let go of vengeance. To just let it go. You've been hurt. You've been wronged, and nothing's been done. Right? In this hope that you have of getting even by withholding your life, what it is when you drill down and you go back a couple layers, it's a mistrust that God's eternal judgment is going to be good enough, right enough, timely enough, perfect enough. You think it's not going to be anything like what you really want, so you're going to keep hating them. You're going to keep withholding your prayer, your forgiveness, vengeance. It takes 10 different forms. But what it really is is a mistrust that God is good enough and his judgment is good enough that you could be satisfied today. That's something we have to repent for. That's something I have to repent for. All right? Listen, there's one passage I'm going to read to us, and then we're going to finish. I think it's fitting to finish a sermon like this on a passage like this because we have the Apostle John peering into the future. However that worked, I'm not quite sure, but in Revelation 20... He says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave them up, up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Listen, friend, especially if you are far from Christ today, or if you're watching and you're far from Christ, judgment is a promise, but it's also an invitation. Judgment is. Because those who spurn God will be successful. You're going to win. You're going to get exactly what you want. What you've always wanted, an existence without God as a caring father. Instead, you'll have God as an eternal judge. And you need to know, if this is you, judgment, eternal judgment, is not ripping you off. Mm -mm, He's giving you what you want. What I hope you see in something like this is that hell isn't worth having. That he is pure in his judgment. He's kind, he's consistent, and he's pure. 
So the promise is a day is coming when the cancer of sin will be pulled out by our great surgeon. That's a promise. The invitation is this same judge extends kindness to you and me. A grace, a mercy that is so kind that is leading us to repent. It's leading us to behold him. It's leading us to say he is better than all things that we call good here in this world. That's what I hope you see.